my name is Tom Jennings and this is 24 Frames Cast. And on today's episode I'll be looking at Steven Sodenberg's film Contagion, the documentary TT Closer to the Edge, a look back at the BBC mini-series of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and I will be shining a spotlight on the two releases from Masters of Cinema, Touch of Evil and Silent Running. But before I get into all that, I want to talk about something that happened about three weeks ago. Now, just to kind of go on a quick tangent here, one of my jobs is I work for dance music record labels and we have an awful problem in that industry with piracy and unfortunately the thing about dance music is, is that you have um, I suppose a hardcore group of fans who put their efforts into sharing music illegally and it's not so much done through torrent sites it's more or less done through whereas and blogs and sites and how these people actually do it is mostly they upload file um, or songs or whatever to what are commonly known as cyber lockers. Um, you've probably seen them before, heard of them, Rapid Share, File Sonic, and things like that. And about three weeks ago, one of the biggest cyber lockers, Mega Upload, was closed on the behest of the FBI. And its owner, Kim Schmidt, or Kim.com, as he was known as, uh, I think he actually had his name changed to that, um, was arrested on a warrant and is currently being incarcerated in New Zealand. The arrest took place, I believe it was a Friday, and on the following Monday, um, I received an email from one of my clients, and we were kind of um, quite pleased, well, he was anyway quite pleased that lots of the other file locker sites, such as FileSonic, FileServe, um, FileJungle, had disabled their users from being able to share links. They could, in fact, upload their content to them, but anyone other than the person that uploaded them would not be able to download them. Now, I wasn't um, jumping for joy because it didn't take very long for the kind of sharing community to work around this problem, uh, which was to simply go to other uh, file hosting sites, of which there were many, um, of which most of them had absolutely uh, no fear whatsoever of the FBI coming knocking at the door. And the entire kind of, um, I suppose, whereas community was really kind of shaken for about three hours before everyone decided what to do and obviously that thing was to carry on as normal. Absolutely nothing changed. The amount of uploads going with um, copyrighted material did not change at all and by the Tuesday it was business as usual. Now I think the studios uh, who had kind of um, act, got the FBI to act on behalf of them were jumping for joy when they got the mega upload, you know, Kim.com got arrested and the site got shut down. They were even more pleased. I read many, many posts by uh, people working at people like uh, Universal, Sony and Disney kind of talking about this being the first salvo in a war, etc. And I, I, I really honestly don't think they realised just how quickly everything had recovered. And this whole kind of internet piracy, I think, um, is kind of very strange because it appears to be understood by everyone bar the studios and the major corporations who are trying to get it closed down. Now, I say that because the reason why they went after places like Mega Upload and FileSonic was because the uploaders actually got paid on the amount that people downloaded of their files. And I've seen, I've, I've, I've seen um, screenshots of people who were big big uploaders and 
some of them do make some pretty decent money and perhaps it's not enough to live on um, in Britain or say America but certainly for a lot of people in Eastern Europe and um, kind of South America it's a pretty decent income and indeed for a lot of people in America and Europe and stuff like that in the uh, I hesitate to really say the developed countries, but kind of more affluent countries, it can be a pretty decent sideline for the kind of time investment that you put into actually uploading the stuff, the amount of money you actually get paid for downloading it. And the studios really objected to the fact that people could make money out of this um, industry. Kim.com was worth about $178 million when he was arrested. This guy's a pretty colourful character as well. I can definitely recommend Googling him. Um, he... He just seems to be one of these absolute buffoons. Um, he has a car with um, an plate with gangster on it. Another one's got mafia. Another one has stoned. He actually made a film about him becoming the world's best player at Call of Duty Online. He's an absolute prick of the highest order, but still kind of funny. It, 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 it amused me that when he got kind of arrested on his compound in New Zealand, um, there was a few illegal weapons in there, and uh, I heard uh, reports of a couple of keys of coke, but. The simple fact of the matter was people could make money out of this and the studios seemed to think that the only reason why people were uploading was because they wanted to make money from the amount of downloads. But had they actually bothered in the uh, aftermath of Mega Upload and the other uh, side blockers deciding to ban the sharing, what they would have noticed was, had they been actually watching, was that people upload onto the internet just because they can. There isn't this type of, you know, oh, I'm, I could make $50 a week out of doing this. But some people just do it because they actually want to. They want to go out, buy a DVD or a Blu-ray or whatever, and then upload it online for free. And I dare say there's various reasons why people do this. Um, I would imagine some people just like the uh, the comments they get, you know, like you see a lot of people like thanking them and saying you, know, you the man and all this kind of crap. And I think some people actually really like that. I think it gives them a sense of being um, when perhaps in the uh, kind of physical world they don't actually get that. But things began to really kind of make me laugh when I was reading uh, as to how much the studios actually think they were losing and how much they thought people were making. Now, the figures are so grossly exaggerated to be as alarming as possible. And of course, when they're applying pressure to governments to act, they can sort of kind of spin that and saying, well, yeah, we're losing a billion dollars. Think how much you're losing in tax, etc. And, you know, you can relatively easily, you can get an idea of how much content is being downloaded, especially through torrent sites. Another little thing about this is a lot of, um, I think the FBI, they're trying to get the um, the names of the biggest um, uploaders to things like Mega Upload, and uh, I, I've heard they might even be trying to get IP addresses for people who've been downloading, but I, I think it'll be such an enormous task, I don't think they're going to bother, and I think there is um, certainly some civil rights issues involved with that. But certainly on torrent sites anyway, you can definitely get an idea of how much is being downloaded over a given time. And I remember reading that uh, the latest Star Trek film was downloaded 10 million times through torrent sites and of course what the studio obviously did was say well that's 10 million uh, copies of the DVD or the Blu-ray that we didn't sell which equates to this and it's absolute bollocks because as it happens in the dance music industry people download just because they can they never had any intention of ever buying the product ever they were simply never going to part with money for what they are downloading 
and the studios don't like to admit this, I don't think. When they kind of go on about it, they seem to paint this picture that they're kind of on the brink of bankruptcy. And that simply is not true. Most of them do turn healthy profits. It, I, I would kind of contest it. I'm, don't for any, please, for any, for any reason, think that I'm somehow condoning illegal downloading. I'm completely against it. However, I think I am kind of building up to a kind of a slightly bigger issue here, which I will get to in a minute. But despite, you know, these kind of the fact that they're, you know, still turning profits, what's actually happening is they're not actually making as much money as they used to. And I think they have become fixated on the piracy issue as being the reason that they are not making as much money as they think that they should be. I believe that the truth is a little more complicated than they would like to admit. And I'm going to kind of like offer a few um, thoughts and observations here as to think why I think that might be. Okay, firstly, there is the price point. Now, piracy and illegal downloading is rife in poorer countries. And the, the answer is very simple. It's because people simply do not have the money to part with on luxury items. And I think downloading becomes a real kind of, I, I suppose it's just a monetary choice. There is simply no other choice for them if they want to see something. But I wouldn't be able to kind of offer any kind of solution as to why, you know, how you could kind of combat that. I know in Russia they do those kind of R5 discs, which are kind of cheap um, DVDs of kind of relatively new films. Uh, normally they have a Russian dub soundtrack and even they appear online sometimes because some people just take the English audio and put it over the R5 and kind of release these kind of, I suppose, better than normal bit rate rips, but they're still not great. I've personally never parted money with them. Um, I've seen, I think I might have seen District 9 on, well, that's a film I'll get to in a minute as well, um, because I think I might have seen District 9 on R5 and I gave up watching after about 10 minutes. I wanted to kind of see it um, in the best quality I possibly could. But I think the studios are better off just kind of not even trying to bother with countries where, you know, piracy is so high, because I, I, I sort of think that it's, it's a simple fact is that you can't suddenly make people earn more money. The only thing you can do, I guess, is to bring the price down and make it slightly more relative to people's income. But even then, I still I, I still don't think it would solve the problem. But the real money is to be made in countries where people do have a disposable income. And that's where I think price point is a massive, massive issue. Now, a few, couple of weeks ago, I was walking through my local supermarket and I saw Kill List on Blu-ray for £10.99. I've never seen the film before. I'd only heard good things about it. So I decided to blind buy the disc and at £10.99, I think that is irresistibly reasonable. If Were I to go and have seen that film at the cinema... In which, you know, we are kind of all blind buying to an extent when we go to the cinema, unless you kind of, you know... Um, unless you're absolutely 100% sure you're going to enjoy it. There is that kind of uh, risk that you're going to go and pay money and uh, completely hate what you see. But for me and my girlfriend to go to the cinema uh, with parking, and she'll probably want some sweets as well, it's going to come to about just over £20. And the issue is that for some people it's simply not um, feasible to go to the cinema. I've certainly got a lot of friends at the moment who are going through, uh, all having children and things like that, and you're getting a babysitter and etc. It becomes a bit of a nightmare. However, if you put a film on Blu-ray at 10 99 I can guarantee 
that people like myself will blind buy. And a perfect example is a film I'll be reviewing today, but uh, Contagion is coming out on Blu-ray quite soon. Now, if you're going to pre-order the film at the moment, it's $15.99 on Amazon. And it's one of those films, it, it, as I'll get, talk about again in a little bit, but it didn't really do much business here. It kind of came and went. But if you stick it out on the shelf on Blu-ray and, you know, even on DVD a little bit less for $10.99 and someone walking through the supermarket and they see the names Jude Law, Kate Winslet, Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon. I should imagine quite a lot of people will buy it without having actually seen it, just on the names alone. And, you know, Contagion obviously has that kind of like high concept value to it. I, I should imagine you read the back and you would be quite interested in the film. $15.99, they're going to walk past it. I don't. I, I really don't think it's something that people would feel that compelled to part with that much money for. So in short, I think by lowering the prices, I do think obviously there is going to be a certain hit taken. But... I can guarantee that the numbers of casual buyers will come out. People like my brother are a lot like that. They do a lot of blind buying, but only when that price point is in that kind of £10.99 region. Now, the second kind of aspect to all this is two weeks ago, there was a pretty good um, slew of releases. Uh, Drive and Tinker Soldiers Spy on Blu-ray. And I went into town. They came out on the Monday. And I went to town on the Wednesday and I was able to pick up Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy no problem. But Drive had completely sold out all over Manchester. And there's a few music film shops. Obviously, there's all the supermarkets that sell it. But you could not find a single copy of Drive on Blu-ray anywhere. You could buy it on DVD, but you could not buy it on Blu-ray. And I spoke to the guy in the HMV I was, I was visiting and... Slight tangent here as well. I've been trying to kind of support my local um, music kind of video stores recently, but I'm going to have to give up. I mean, the price, again, it's price point, but um, when you can buy a disc in HMV for £17 and get the exact same disc off Amazon for £11, even if you pay the extra premium for the next day delivery, you're still going to be saving some money. So I'm very sorry, HMV, but um, our uh, kind of love affair, which has been on the wane for many, many years, I'm afraid to say I'm going to kind of uh, put a stop to it now. But anyway... Getting back to the point, the guy in HMV told me that the Blu-rays actually sold out. The shop opened at 8 o'clock in the morning. They'd sold out by about 1. And he said people were going absolutely apeshit for it. They sold loads of copies. And there wasn't going to be any more in stock until the end of the week. And this whole kind of thing got me going because Drive wasn't a particularly um, huge from the box office here. But it was, I suppose, the word of mouth was absolutely brilliant. It seems to be even uh, in my girlfriend's office, uh, a lot of people there who had kind of seen it were raving about it. And it really kind of generated this interest. People were kind of saying they wanted to go out and see it. And that kind of got me thinking, which was that how can the film that does kind of like reasonable business at the box office and then become such a massive seller on home video? And the simple fact was it's because Drive is a bloody good film. And I kind of would propose this to the studios, which would be, how about actually making films that people really want to see? Now, something like X-Men Wolverine is a case in point. I can easily imagine that it sold a lot on Blu-ray and DVD. And probably did pretty well at the box office as well. But had that film been a lot better than it actually was, I can guarantee that it would have sold and made a truckload more money than it actually did. 
people like I would have bought it. I've got um, X Men One, X Men Two, and X Men: The Last Stand. They did come in a box set, and I haven't bought X Men Origins Wolverine. I don't really want to see it. I, I saw it, um, a rental copy of it, and I, it was just it was awful. And I don't know anyone really said a good thing to say about it. I'm sure, like I said, a lot of people would have bought it, but you would have sold so many more copies had they have actually made a decent film. Now, it's so easy to say, isn't it, make a decent film. But, I mean, for fuck's sakes, just look at some of the stuff that is coming out at the moment and just the state of cinema. I don't honestly know who these films are aimed at. And it, it was something I, I, I kind of touched upon in the last episode, but I feel so disconnected from films at the moment and going to the cinema. And obviously, you know, if you do hunt around, you will find um, quality, but... It is a bit of a chore and just looking at the crap that comes out. And this is the thing. I don't like kind of like art house stuff all the time, but I like kind of dumb Hollywood films as much as the next person. But they have to be of a certain quality. And at the moment, just the, the, the stuff that comes out, people go and see it just because it's on, basically. And after that, it kind of gets forgotten about. But perhaps one suggestion would be to them is to make less films and try and concentrate on making slightly better ones. That way, people will spend the money on them. However, all you hear, and obviously because of my work with dance music companies, is the studios saying how they're being killed by piracy. It, it was quite interesting. I went to a conference down in London um, a few weeks ago in which there was a guy from uh, Disney there, and you would have thought that he was kind of there to kind of do a kind of a kind of a eulogy to Disney in the way he was talking and he had these quite impressive graphs from showing about how much um you know that they weren't making on certain things and stuff like that and it was all you know kind of let's have a whip round for them you don't forget they're still making absolutely billions I did want to kind of mention that they should dispense with their ridiculous policy of only releasing their films in a limited time and perhaps if they did that then um they would get slightly more kind of uh consistent sales over the year but uh, it was one of those where the guy was there to kind of plead his case and then leave quite quickly but one of the things they were going on about was blu-ray and how blu-ray hasn't grown as fast as they thought it would and etc etc and all oh, the quality this and the quality that well yeah you know i love blu-ray um we are unfortunately in the midst of a certain financial crisis and you know, for a lot of people, buying a Blu-ray, um, it does involve some kind of upgrade of their technology. Now, you know, people like my brother, for example, um, didn't know that you had to have an HDMI cable to get the best picture and things like that. And for the less tech savvy, I think it will obviously kind of take on a little bit more than it is now. But the simple fact of the matter is as well, just what kind of on the subject of Blu-rays, I watched a, uh, I can't remember what film it was now, but and I popped in the disc and I'm confronted with 10 minutes of trailers that I can't skip. I can speed my way through them, but still it's a bit of a pain in the ass. And already as well, I think the studios haven't really learnt from the DVD, uh, or in fact they have learnt from the DVD market, which is kind of like double dips, because already, you know, Avatar, you know, the biggest film ever, has already had two releases within a year of each other. And I think people are slightly fed up with this, and I think they kind of spot it coming now. I know Drive, the case in point, apparently that was a, uh, there's going to be a special edition of that coming quite soon. But, you know, if you are slightly tech-savvy, you can go online and you can download relatively quickly 1080p 5.1 
DTS downloads of recent films, which take up about, what, 8-9 gigabytes of hard drive space. And, you know, if you don't want them, you can just delete them afterwards, where you don't have to sit through the five, ten minutes of trailers, where it doesn't really matter if there's a double dip because you can perhaps illegally download the vanilla release and then wait until the next dip comes along. I know people done it, I have done it myself. And I, I, I still, I just don't think that the studios have the respect for consumers that they should do. And were, I think, they to kind of really sit down and start asking people out on the street, I think they would be quite surprised at what they actually heard. Now, there is, I think, a dark side to all this, which is two pieces of legislation currently going through at the moment called SOPTA and ACTA. Now, these are both going through in America and Europe, and basically what they are there to do is to try and curb online piracy. But they are also, I think, backdoors for some far more sinister uh, policing of the internet. And I don't personally think that they will go through in their current form. And I know there's a lot of pressure being applied by the entertainment industry on various governments. And they've virtually bought these bills as well. That is the kind of thing that I find quite disturbing from a kind of a democracy point of view. But these pieces of legislation, they haven't been written by people who really know what is going on. And I think they are indicative of the fact that the entertainment industry is so desperate to cling on to old models of film distribution that they are really ignoring the fact that the kind of I don't I don't believe that we're kind of in this age of that you know the, the end of physical media but I, I think the way people consume films um, is going to change a great deal in the next 10 years and they seem to be kind of I think anyway with these pieces of legislation militarising people who would otherwise be not particularly bothered because the kind of campaigns um, against these bills are quite clever and I think they, they do tend to kind of pick on the um, kind of doomsday scenarios out of all of them but I saw a piece on YouTube the other day, somebody made a video showing um, it's actor that's going to come through in Europe, well they're trying to put through in Europe but something as simple if you went to a cookery class and then put the recipe you learn online on your blog or something like that you could then have your internet cut off because you are technically a copyright offender. Now I, I really doubt something like that would happen but yeah there might, it might do but were this act to go through anyway but it's things like that that alarm people and they suddenly make people sit up and take notice and there is a massive backlash I think against the entertainment industry for doing this and what I actually think would it be it will just make people even more annoyed with them and make people want to upload and download illegally because you can do all you want uh, to try and stop piracy people will always find a way of putting it through whether it's through private networks or you know you might even kind of see the rise of a kind of underground internet you know, you'll have the visible one, which is police and monitored, and another one, it's all very Matrix-esque, but I do think that the studios are playing a very dangerous game, and politicians are as well, because I, since I really believe that the thing, the thing about this kind of legislation is that the, it is the young people who are the most against it, and traditionally, kind of, I don't know if I'm speaking for the rest of Europe and the world here, but in England there is a, a kind of, not many kind of people who of voting age from, I think about the age of 18 to sort of 25, 
the percentage-wise, not a great deal actually kind of vote in elections. And I think something like this, which all you would have to see is, say, for example, the government here, David Cameron and the Conservatives, if they put that through, I think you would radicalise that kind of age group politically. And I, I genuinely believe it could cost someone an election. And on the other hand, I think it could win someone an election. Like I said, I don't necessarily think that these two bills will pass in their present form. I think that there is a long way to go yet. And I think the solutions are there if people want to explore them, especially, I mean, kind of the industry we are in. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, um, should be a lot of pressure applied to companies who knowingly host sites and blogs that are there to share illegal copyrighted material. I, I, it, it seems so crazy to me that they, they kind of just, these sites can just sort of stay online. You know, perhaps there's something there that can be done and you know, look at the uh, kind of the search engine provided you know, you know we, we can ask Google to remove listings and things like that perhaps we, there's you know more that can be done on that side of things but the problem is I think the studios are trying to itch a scratch that it's not going to go anywhere they seem to think that you know if you get rid of piracy sales are going to go through the roof and I genuinely do not think that is the case and I think part of this problem and indeed I think it's something which studios should really be thinking about is when they're sat there looking at a script for a remake or prequel to the thing perhaps they should be paying closer attention to the pile of scripts next to them that perhaps might be slightly more original and the fact that people might actually be more inclined to go and watch them than another cheap crappy remake reboot sequel or whatever the fuck it they decide it's gonna be and on that note, I will stand down from my soapbox and get on with, I suppose, last year. It was, I suppose, the crowning event that kind of really indicated to me that Britain really does have a problem with dickheads. Because last August, following the tragic shooting of a young man in London, a small minority of absolute morons decided to go rioting and the rioting quickly spread from London to most of the cities all over Britain and it was I suppose a fairly depressing advert for this country. I shudder to think how the event was reported abroad. I did see a little bit of coverage um, from the American news channels and it, I, I actually genuinely felt ashamed of how Britain was being portrayed because we don't have a particularly great reputation abroad. I know a lot of people who are Europeans and we are really considered to be just a nation of absolute pissheads who go to their quaint cities and coastal towns of Europe and act like absolute yobs. Um, I suppose I'm slightly ashamed to admit I've been on several stag do's in Europe and have probably fallen into the category of the drunken Brit myself. But there was, of course, in all this, um, a very human tragedy, which is that a lot of businesses were actually destroyed and some of them didn't have insurance. And, you know, thankfully the government uh, did step in and offer to help get those who didn't have insurance back up on their feet and get them running again. And in particular, there was a Sony distribution centre down in London that was set ablaze. And it wasn't just Sony products that were distributed from this distribution centre. There was a lot of independent record labels and a lot of independent film distributors. And they lost all their stock. And one of them in particular um, was dear to me, which was 
Masters of Cinema, which is an offshoot of uh, Eureka Home Entertainment. And Masters of Cinema, I suppose, is the UK equivalent of the Criterion Collection. In fact, there's a lot of films that come out on Criterion, which also come out on Masters of Cinema. Um, I've seen a, um, a few websites that kind of compare different versions of... Uh, the same release, notably I think the Master Cinema version of M is apparently considered to be better than the Criterion one, I don't know if that's true, but certainly they share a lot in common and I, I, I would kind of contest, I think Master Cinema, I'm looking at my shelf now, it's up to about 150 releases in all, including DVD and Blu-ray, and tragically they did lose all their stock and mercifully it wasn't the end of the company they had to um i suppose kind of re readjust and kind of go back and uh get some releases that were due out out and have a look at what they were going to do with their back catalogue and mercifully what they decided to do now is actually go through the films that have come out on dvd that haven't come out on blu-ray and put out some releases and last week in fact there was a uh, a slew of re-releases of some of the early blu-ray collection and it's gonna be great because i do own all of them on uh, dvd and there's I'm, I'm looking forward to picking them up again on blu-ray so i decided on this episode to talk about two masters of cinema blu-ray releases which came out last year that I really enjoyed and I think going forward because um, there's been a few more since actually that I, I've, I've, I've picked up I'm going to perhaps do a little segment here just every time they bring out a disc that I, I enjoy just shine a spotlight on it because I think it's important to try and try and support uh, companies like Masters Cinema and what they do you know Criterion as well because these guys you know they go back to films which in the age of where you have to release you know Big Mama's House uh, 1, 2 and 3 and Blu-ray you know, some of the um, little-known releases tend to get kind of left behind, especially as we change formats. You often find that titles kind of disappear. I'm still waiting for my Michael Mann, uh, The Keep. In fact, if you're listening, Master Cinema or Criterion, get pick up The Keep, get Martin, uh, sorry, Michael Mann back there and do something with that. But I, I, you know, I do really admire what these guys do, and I, I think. Um, if you're going to spend money on entertainment, I really can't think of anything better than chucking it their way. But last year, there were two Blu-ray releases, which I think were pretty massive to me. And I've enjoyed them so much since I kind of picked them up. And they were Touch of Evil and Silent Running. And firstly, I'm going to talk about the release of Touch of Evil. <laughs> This was her wedding night. Where was the man she had married? Who were these hoodlums? Older legs. Starring this outstanding cast, Charlton Heston, Janet Leigh, I could love being corny if my husband would only cooperate. Orson Welles, co-starring Joseph Kalea, Hakim Tamirov, with guest stars Marlena Dietrich, Jaja Gabor. What are you trying to do? We're trying to strap you in the electric chair, boy. Only the offbeat original creative powers of Orson Welles could bring you so suspenseful, so gripping, so different a drama of love threatened by vengeance. Mike may be spoiling some of your... Mike! 
my husband. Yeah. And if you're trying to scare me into calling him off, let me tell you something, Mr. Grandy. I may be scared, but he won't be. Of a struggle between titans. You framed that boy. Framed him! Of a manhunt like nothing you've ever experienced. A cop now. I'm a husband. What did you do with her? Where is my wife? My wife! times have you heard the words Orson Welles and genius in the same sentence? I think sometimes the problem with things like that is hearing it so often I think it kind of dilutes the impact of the words. I think they sort of they become a little bit kind of um, stock I suppose in how they seem to be kind of just added as a given when we talk about certain directors and actors and writers. Wells' descent from the next biggest thing in cinema to an almost penniless, overweight exile was startling and utterly tragic. The fact remains, however, that despite the studio interference and the doors that were slammed in his face, Wells' films speak for themselves. He was a genius, and no matter how hard you try, it is near impossible not to be in awe of the sheer mastery of cinema the man possessed. With so many unfinished works, and some of his films edited so far beyond his original vision, we should be grateful for what we do have. However, it was even more of a bonus when a work that was previously cut is restored, which is exactly what happened in 1998 with Touch of Evil. Wells, upon first seeing the studio cut of the film, went home having made no notes whatsoever and wrote a 58-page memo to the studio with a series of recommendations of which only a few were actually taken note of and such people would essentially be released as a B-movie with a running time of 93 minutes. However, it was sound designer and editor Walter Murch along with producer Rick Schmidlin, who went back to Wells' original memo and were able to put together a version of the film that was as close to his vision as could possibly be. The result? Well, of course, it's a masterpiece, and Wells is a genius. The story is as noir as noir can be. In a small border town between Mexico and America, a car drives from the Mexico side over the border and blows up with a man and a woman on board. From Mexico, Detective Raymond Varga, played by Charlton Heston, witnesses the explosion, along with wife Susan, played by Janet Lee. Varga wants to get involved with the case. After all, it did originate from his side, from Mexico. However, over the border, Captain Hank Quinlan, played by Orson Welles, has other ideas. Hank and partner Pete are local heroes, always catching their man and sending criminals to death row. Only Vargas won't get out of the way, and when a suspect is found in the boyfriend of the dead man's daughter, along with some evidence, Hank appears to have the right person. Only Vargas has 
another theory only to mess with Hank comes with potentially lethal consequences and it's not only he who's in danger, wife Susan also finds herself in a potentially fatal spiral as the sleaze and sinister goings on of the town threaten her very life. And that is where I'm going to cut my kind of, I suppose, synopsis of the film short, because to say any more would potentially perhaps ruin it for you. But I need to talk about, really, the first time that I ever saw Touch of Evil, because it was a near perfect first time viewing experience. It was around about, I think, about 10 years ago, and it was a blazing hot summer's night. And it was one of those kind of, in fact, it was probably longer than 10 years ago. I, I think I was probably in my teens, late teens. But it was one of those kind of um, summers where my parents had gone on holiday for about three weeks, leaving me at home on my own. And for any of those of you who um, have experienced that, there is nothing better than when your mum and dad go away and you get the rule of the roost because you can really kind of do whatever it is the damn you please. And I seem to remember that particular day. The sun had been absolutely blisteringly hot and I'd spent most of the day round the pub drinking and it, it's, it's strange when it's dead sunny because when you drink the you kind of tend to sweat it out and you although you, I kind of I would say I was far from sober I was um, certainly in a pretty decent mood and it was a time as well where I used to smoke so I remember coming home kind of lying in the living room in this kind of nice haze of having a nice day with friends and lighting a cigarette and I started to flick through the channel. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and I had the uh, patio doors wide open, and it was still fairly hot outside. And I remember seeing a scroll come up on the screen, and it must it must have actually been um, around 98, 99 this happened, because it was the scroll that appears at the start of the Blu-ray in explaining how Wells had um, fought for the version of the film that you were about to see, basically. And I realised quite early on that I'd never seen Touch of Evil. I was um, pretty film savvy. Obviously, I'd heard of Orson Welles. I was a massive fan of Citizen Kane, but I'd never actually seen this. And then the film began with that opening tracking shot. And what a shot. As we follow a bomb from the Mexican side of the border to the American side, we see the bustling border town, and there is an air of sleaze and menace lurking in the shadows, with the music coming in and out of the soundtrack, you almost forgot that this was all taking place in one glorious tracking shot. And I was hooked from the off. The warm summer nights somehow made me feel as if I was kind of feeling the same heat they were in the film. And the kind of uh, my kind of then chain smoking was kind of adding to the uh, noir bliss that I was in. And Touch of Evil instantly entered my life as one of my favourite films. I think with every kind of time I see it as well, it climbs further up the rankings. And I think it, but it's because I associate it so much with that day and night that I think it kind of, it, they kind of form this one really great memory. But perfect seems to be almost too much praise for a film. But there is no other word really that comes to mind close to describing it. And perhaps it is the my kind of blinkered view of it that makes me think like that. But I would certainly contest that it is a masterpiece of cinema. Now the noir genre cuts through to the dark side of man. Touch of Evil hacks at the wound to expose a world so corrupt and bleak. It's a little wonder that it was... it isn't really that surprising that it didn't really find an audience at the time. 
There is a brutalness to it that doesn't manifest itself in acts of extreme violence. Moreover, the inherent cruelty of its central protagonist, Hank, who is, I suppose, so much more than just a kind of a black and white villain that you might expect. Quillen has no qualms about ruining people's lives. He rewrites the law as he goes along. We cannot really be sure how many innocent people he has sent down, if he has sent anyone innocent down at all. I think we can kind of, perhaps, we might assume that he has just because of the way he behaves, but you know, perhaps he does get his man, who knows? But what we do know is Hank will make evidence fit the crime when needed, and the resultant punishment for those he takes down is, as it's kind of hinted at in the film, the electric chair. Wells is often lauded as a director, but I, I think he was equally accomplished an actor. And Quinlan is an obese, mumbling drunk, a crass bully who is worshipped by everyone around him. Baddies are seldom this compelling. His scheming is a joy to behold and actually gives Vic Mackey a run for the sheer gall of his deceit. Perhaps it was only Wells who knew how to get the best out of himself and a character. Often he shoots from a low angle and Quinlan dominates every scene he's in. Wells blocking forces your attention onto him, which kind of coupled with these mumbling misanthropic lines and snarky put-downs makes him, I, I, I suppose, a despicable figure, really. He's, there is not much redeeming about him whatsoever, but for some reason, I think, because Wells is able to kind of add a little layer of kind of character and personality under all this, you do find yourself being quite taken with him. Heston, too, is absolutely superb as Vargas, and I, I personally really love Charlton Heston as an actor. He's character's always seem to be imbued with a heroism that doesn't necessarily manifest itself in him smashing his way through things to kind of be heroic. He just seems to kind of exude a natural heroism. And Vargas, I think, is perfectly kind of fitting into the kind of the Heston range of acting because Vargas wants to do the right thing. He wants to save his wife and he wants to stop Quinlan and the corruption. Some might say it's offensive to have a white person playing a Hispanic character, but looking deeper into it, how often are Hispanic characters either presented as just being villains or supporting parts? I think Wells actually deserves to be saluted for his vision in having Larkus be the central hero of the piece. And indeed, doing so on American soil, fighting against American corruption, it is an inverse of stereotype that I really, one, I don't know, I kind of just said it then really, but you have to admire Wells, I think, for being that brave. And... Gently also, you know, to be fair, she doesn't have a great deal to do. She is a kind of damsel in distress. But I think it's quite interesting because watching Touch of Evil, I think you can see a um, certain Mr. Hitchcock waiting in the wings because I, I, the two films, I think, do share a few things in common. And certainly Lee, I think she she's not a dumb kind of heroine. And I think that's something which makes... Um, both films slightly more scarier because she's kind of being tricked and manipulated into being where she is but she's not there because she's being utterly stupid I think you know as well one of the other things that makes Touch of Evil so noteworthy is that Wells's casting is superb in every department in that he seems to invest in that he seems to have a vested interest into making each one just a little bit noteworthy. Of course, you have Marlana Dietrich in there as a um, a fortune teller. Of course, you know, obviously it's Marlana Dietrich. You know, you have you're not going to take notes of her, but she she's always had that kind of 
um, I guess, sort of mysteriousness about her. I wouldn't say she's like stunningly attractive or anything like that. I think she's actually quite masculine in her performance and mannerisms, but she seems to add an, a kind of a layer of intrigue to it. And you could easily imagine kind of her being a fortune teller in a kind of a seedy little town. It, it's rather brilliant, but... And yeah, you know, Dennis Weaver is this kind of nervous motel owner. And again, I, I think you can see kind of Mr. Hitchcock uh, getting some ideas there again. And Valentine de Vargas as Poncho, the kind of um, hood who's in the film. They all kind of, they just, they make what would be otherwise incidental characters incredibly interesting. Now, I kind of love the fact as well how people like, kind of like Milana Dietrich um, ended up being in the film. She was a good friend of Wells and in fact... The two had actually worked together doing magic shows for troops during World War II. I mean, imagine how cool it must have been seeing Orson Welles do magic tricks. If you watch his documentary, actually, um, F for Fake, that is out on um, both Criterion and Master Cinema. He does do a few little tricks in that, and I can imagine it being really entertaining. But, you know, she actually turned up the studio, didn't even know she was going to be there. And uh, she apparently turned up and did all her uh, scenes in one day, but... But really, I think the true star of the film is Wells, the director. Now, I could spend days talking about his composition. No one shoots seedlings like Orson Wells, And if you're kind of familiar with his films, you know what I'm talking about. And the kind of the way the camera moves. And it's, 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 it's everything from you know, Vargas carrying a hood by the throat through a bar. And to a scene in which Vargas and a local attorney simply drive through a town. And if you've seen the film, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is one of the most, for, for some reason, it, it kind of blows me away every time I see this sequence. And it is just literally one shot of them driving. It's absolutely astonishing to see. And every single frame of the film is just pure cinema. Wells clearly loves the camera. Every composition has something that makes you think about the shot. The mise-en-scene is there, I think, to kind of invite you to look into the image like more than you normally would from oil pumps to porcelain animals on the table there is something to look at in every single shot and DOP Russell Metty and, and Wells opted for black and white and which in an age of widescreen and technicolor I think you know you, you have to kind of admire that the, I suppose the kind of the director and the DOP kind of sticking to their kind of roots and going for their vision and not kind of doing the normal Hollywood thing because touch of evil is a very claustrophobic film and as you know obviously it's black and white but you can feel the heat from this town you can get that sense of the closeness of it all and it's a kind of a nightmarish world it, it, it didn't really surprise me that kind of Wells would tackle later tackle Kafka with um, the trial because there is a kind of a Kafkaesque type of kind of nightmare to what's going on with Vargas that kind of you know everything not quite being as it seemed and the other aspect of it that you have to look at is, well, listen to, in fact, is the sound of the film. Because Wells' background in radio is apparent and the non-diegetic music and sound adding another layer of storytelling and indeed direction to the film. How apt that Walter Murch would be involved in the restoration project. He actually turned down the horse whisperer in order to be involved with it. And... Murch actually later found out that a technique that he thought he'd invented for The Godfather on recording sound and music together and then re-recording it through a crappy speaker was actually already done by Wells. 
or at least suggested by him in Touch of Evil. And he, he was apparently very moved by this because he felt like he and Wells had this kind of thing in common, despite the fact that they'd never met and that Wells was actually dead. But overall, I think it's just, it's a veritable film school um, in its kind of hour and 40 minutes running time. I've been watching it on repeat so much, trying to get ideas from, from my own work off it and things like that. And it, it, for it, despite no matter how many times I see it, it never seems to get boring. And I, you know, watching it again the other day, it's such a universal film because the kind of borderland the story takes place. There is no real difference between the Mexican side and the American side. They have one de facto element that kind of, I suppose, links them both, which is evil. And so, of course, it's no real surprise that this kind of rather bleak film would be butchered by the pu by the studio. It's not hard to imagine how you would, I suppose, if you had some money invested in it, you would look to try and improve it or you know, make it a little bit more palatable for the masses. But the fact of the matter was it would be released in a butchered format and it would kind of come and go without much fanfare whatsoever. So I suppose we have to thank the cinema gods that it would be restored and restored so well. And you know, just to kind of clarify, everyone involved in the restoration, this is not the exact version of what Wells actually wanted. It is as close to the 58 page memo as it possibly could be. And there's still something, I, I dare say if um, Orson was around today and he suddenly had all the footage, we might get another version of Touch of Evil. But unfortunately he's not. And instead we are left with this rather brilliant Masters of Cinema Blu-ray. And I suppose now I'll kind of talk a little bit about what you actually get on the disc. Well, you actually get um, a few versions of the film. You get the restoration and you get it in two um, picture formats. You get it in a 1661 frame and a 178 anamorphic widescreen frame, which is the one I would recommend watching. You also get the original studio cut um, in presented in two frames. I haven't actually watched the studio cut. and I, I thought about watching it just to kind of compare differences, but I don't really want my kind of um, viewing pleasure to be tainted uh, knowing that I'm not watching really kind of what Wells wanted. And then, you know, after all, there's so many films to see that I don't really want to spend you know, an hour and a half or whatever watching a film that I kind of I know is a, just a diet version of the rather brilliant one that's on the other disc. But there are some uh, pretty decent commentaries on the disc. The first one is just the producer, Rick Schmidlin, um, talking about his experiences of um, getting involved in the um, reconstruction process. And I mean, it's quite interesting. You, you, you kind of see what a great piece of, you know, a massive undertaking it was. And, you know, they didn't, he didn't have a great deal of money. And um, him and Walter Murch were kind of digging around and really having to do some detective work to kind of get some more elements in there and get some sound ideas and things like that. But I think the kind of the, the second commentary with Charlton Heston and um, Janet Lee is really the, the best one because it's been in Janet Lee and Heston and... Charlton Heston, you know, I've said how much I kind of like him before, but he really does come across as a lovely guy. And it, it, um, Schmidtin actually talks about it in the first commentary, which is that you don't have to agree with his politics or anything like that to kind of really um, see what a great guy he was and how very kind he is. And he's so he has such an air of humility about him and just nice things to say about everyone. And he was, you know, 
it, it was him really who um, who got Wells the job of directing um, Touch of Evil. He was the, he went to the studio and sort of said you know that he would be the best person for the job. He was a huge admirer of um, Citizen Kane, and he was incredibly loyal to Wells as well. You know he did, he was um, as angry as uh, anyone that the film was kind of taken off him and butchered, and um, he actually. Uh, we find out paid for the crew and things like that um, at certain times when they had to do additional days that they weren't going to get paid for. And he just comes across as a really warm and gracious person. And it's also good, you know, you know, obviously he's gone now, but the fact that Wells does comment, uh, sorry, Heston did commentaries as well in his lifetime, because I, I, I for one, you know, I think he's too important an actor and too much of a great one, really. So to just kind of like um, have his work speak for itself it's nice to actually hear him talk about his work and you know he it, it's one of those things where you know I am a fan of Michael Moore and I know it's slightly kind of perhaps not fashionable to say that but I was absolutely appalled by what Michael Moore did to Charlton Heston in Bowling for Columbine and I think um you know the, the the man's politics, you know, I might not agree with them wholeheartedly, and I think, you know, towards that end of his life, he did say a fair few controversial things, but as an artist, I have nothing but the absolute respect for him, and I think this commentary, um, I, I think you'll see what I mean if you listen to it. And I think, I think it's Janet Lee really, who best sums it all up, which was, um, you know, her kind of parting words really were, Wells was going to make another five films for Universal after Touch of Evil, and that didn't happen, and, uh, she kind of, um, she's still angry about it because as she puts it, you know, we were denied another five pieces of art by that studio. But, you know, life goes on and you know, we should be thankful for what we do have. And like I said, you know, do check out um, Wells' other films. Mr. Arkadin is another brilliant one. I really enjoyed um, The Trial. And, but, you know, and I might even do an episode on it quite soon, which is F for Fate, which is a pretty interesting film in itself. Some of the other features on this is a couple of making ofs and things like that, which I think have been released on previous um, editions of Touch of Evil. They're contemporary pieces from like 1998 and things like that. Um, they're quite interesting. They're not exactly exhaustive. I, I, you know, you might kind of thought they could have um, done another one now, but they kind of get in there with Charlton Heston and things like that. They're very interesting, but I think if you have got um, uh, the previous special edition, you would have seen these before. The thing I think I really kind of have to talk about, though, is the picture quality on the disc. Now, Masters of Cinema, and I'll talk about it again with Silent Running, but their restorations are how good film restorations should be done, and that is they are respectful to the source. So, yes, film grain is there intact. Mercifully, you know, they haven't been kind of... Noise reduction hasn't been added to it. I think the, the blacks and the whites are exactly how they should be. And this is nothing short of cinematic bliss. It is a vast improvement over any DVD edition I've seen of the film. I have seen Touch of Evil projected in the cinema as well. And I would actually say that, although obviously it had the benefit of the big screen, the Blu-ray is the best presentation I have ever seen of Touch of Evil. Soundtrack as well. It hasn't been remixed into 5.1, which is great. It's just a kind of a standard stereo 2.0 mix. DTS, obviously, uh, Master Audio work on the soundtrack. And they've done, again, uh, another respectful job. They've just kind of cleaned up what was already there to give you the best uh, audio presentation of the film. It is region locked to region B, so you will need 
um, a multi-region of player to actually see it. But if you live in the UK uh, or Europe, uh, or indeed you do have a multi-region player, I would say this needs to be um, an essential purchase for you because Touch of Evil is, I think, a rare gift in that you know we were able, well, we we are able to have this version of it. And like I said, when when you when you listen to the commentary as well, you realise that how much manipulation went into some of the shots to get them more how Wells wanted them to be seen. But I think it is an absolutely brilliant piece of cinema and one that I know I'm going to probably wear this disc out. And just you know, in case you are thinking about buying it, I would actually recommend um, buying it from HMV online because you can get a limited edition steel box edition. Uh, Master Cinema do release some of their Blu-rays in these steel boxes. And um, for some reason, this was an HMV exclusive one, but it's just a nice little package. It's got a fantastic booklet as well. That's the other thing sorry, I haven't mentioned really with these Master Cinema. They, they do go down the Criterion route as well of, of um, releasing um, really well written and interesting little booklets. This is a 58 page, I'm um, sorry, 58 page, but it's not 58 pages, but uh, I've obviously got that on my mind. But um, it's, you know, it, it's a couple of hours read in of itself. And it really kind of like, uh, I think, um, makes you appreciate the film that a little bit more. But overall, I mean, it, currently the Steelbox edition is £15 from HMV. The normal edition is £12.99. Um, from Amazon. This isn't um, a dual format one as well. There is no DVD in there. It's just the Blu-ray. But in total, I think there's a, something like um, I think there's two discs with each of the uh, different versions on. But a fantastic way of spending fifteen pounds. And I, uh, if you haven't seen it before, then please do treat yourself. convoy on a strange voyage carrying a rare cargo the forests the plants the growing things doomed to extinction on earth we have just received orders to abandon and nuclear destruct all the forests and return our ships to commercial service and we're going home we can't blow up this forest Silent running. Cataclysm in outer space. Every moment bringing its own danger as man explores the mysteries of an unknown and limitless universe. Valley Forge, Valley Forge, what the hell's wrong? You're moving out, you're accelerating. I've got a premature detonation on dome number two, and I've got an explosion in the main cargo deck. Now, please advise me immediately. Give me Barker. I can't find Barker. I can't find Wolf or Keenan either. I'm afraid, Neil, that they might have been in dome number two. Dome number one. Meet the almost human drones, amazing companions on a journey beyond the stars. The man has a full house and he knew it. Now how about that? Hear Joan Baez sing Rejoice in the Sun and Silent Running.
Silent Running is a better film than 2001 A Space Odyssey. Not my observation, but that of Mark Commode. And although I don't agree with his view, I would concur with his opinion that Silent Running is one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. And here's the slightly annoying thing. I put off actually watching Silent Running for many years and there was a very simple reason as to why I did this and I was quite frankly petrified that it would make me cry. Um, I remember buying it on VHS uh, when I was at university for 3 99 and I seem to recall that the uh, the appeal of it was it that it was actually being shown in widescreen and at the time I was uh, certainly going through uh, my uh, obsession with rebuying certain films in widescreen and there was a I remember a specific section in the Virgin shop in Sheffield that had um, widescreen only uh, films and at 399 it was kind of like it's mad to think how much VHS is actually used to cost because a lot of times it seemed like they were more expensive than uh, DVDs or certainly the price point was the, uh, the same and I remember seeing Sight Run for 399 and I picked it up and I never watched it because the front cover had um, a picture of Bruce Cern and the robots on it and I just thought, oh God, if this if this does actually make me blubber, I'm going to feel like a complete idiot. And of course, more for me, because of, as time went by, I obviously ditched my copy of the VHS and uh, didn't buy it again on D uh, DVD, although there have been a kind of a few um, versions of it put out here, until obviously Masters Cinema got hold of it and decided to put a Blu-ray out, uh, which time I decided I was going to bite the bullet and man the fuck up and actually watch it. And the end result, yes. Man tears were shed and I think it was more or less uh, kind of a combination of the film and a certain sense of guilt as to what my species has actually done to the world. For those unfamiliar with Silent Running, I'll give you a brief synopsis of what the film's actually about. Earth has long since become a barren wasteland where everyone looks and eats the same and all plant life is now housed in giant greenhouses in space in a fleet of American Airlines spaceships orbiting around Saturn. Freeman Lowell, played by Bruce Dern, is a crewman of one of four on board the Valley Forge. When word from Earth comes in, jettison the greenhouses and detonate them with nuclear bombs and head for home. Lowell has other ideas. After killing the crew, he managed to convince the other ships in the fleet that the Valley Forge has developed a technical problem and that it's going to crash into the rings of Saturn and hurtle off into space. The rest of the fleet wish Lowell well and promise to try and find him, believing he has escaped Lowell reprograms the ship's drones, renaming them Huey, Dewey and Louie, and tries to tend to the remaining greenhouse to keep the forests alive. Only there is a problem. The plant life is beginning to die and the search for him hasn't been called off just yet. Director Douglas Trumbull's work on 2001 won him an Academy Award, but the man's body of work in the field of special effects is truly breathtaking. Close Encounters, Star Trek The Motion Picture, still an underrated Star Trek film, and one day I am I'm going to get to that film because I do love it, uh, Blade Runner, and most recently Tree of Life. With not a whiff of CGI in sight, he has shown us visions of the future that rank among the most iconic moments in cinema history. Strangely enough, it was his experience of working on 2001 that would lead him on the road that would eventually result in him directing Silent Running. Say what you want about 2001 but you would be hard pushed to come to the conclusion that it is a story memorable for its human characters and Trouble wanted 2000 to be one more about people and Silent Running was his opportunity to make a science fiction film that had a far more humanitarian slant. Ironically it was 2001 that helped make science fiction a genre that could be taken seriously 
and long before the genre would be ruined by crass retellings of familiar stories, Siren Running, like all great science fiction, managed to be both fantastical, allegorical and above all hugely entertaining. Many contemporary critics hail its ecological and environmental message. They are in fact perhaps not aware that the early 70s was something of an enlightenment in conservationism. A film shot by Greenpeace showing a whale being harpooned kick-started a global awareness that humans were wreaking havoc on the fragile planet and wildlife. In this respect, Silent Run is very much a product of its time, yet I would contest it is also a searing indictment of humanity and the dangers of radicalisation. It came as no surprise to me to learn that Silent Running was one of five films commissioned by Universal to be made under a million dollars that include the likes of The Hired Hand, American Graffiti and Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. Silent Running was actually going to be fourth in the series. All of these films were quite unique in that the studio was not going to interfere for as long as possible, as long as the filmmakers were able to stay under the budget of a million pounds. Why didn't it surprise me that Silent Run is actually part of this group of films? Is that it's not the cutesy man and robot film I always thought it was, and indeed it is far more morally complex than you actually might think. Lowell's character, brilliantly played by Bruce Dern, has a sound moral reasoning for wanting to save the forests in their care. How can you not really agree with him in the world? In this world, there is nothing more than uh, an empty wasteland which has become of the planet. Yet even I was shocked at how far he goes. Granted, his crewmates, although not exactly likeable, certainly don't deserve to die. They just want to go home, which really is kind of quite understandable if you're stranded out there in space all the time. So when Lowell begins to bump them off, the film places you in quite an interesting place. On the one hand, yes, Lowell is doing the right thing, saving the last chance man might have of being able to enjoy forest. However, I wasn't able to shape the kind of inescapable thought that Lowell is actually a cold-blooded murderer. And it's here that Silent Run perhaps only have been made in the 1970s. Certainly exhibits regrets for what he has done. He is not psychopathic, but is it the right thing to do? And of course now we are all aware of the realm of, well, we're all aware of the term radicalisation. You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So in this respect, you know, does Lowell actually go a little bit too far? Well, here is the next thing. Despite wanting to escape with the forests, and even though the other ships in the fleet think he is dead, no one actually gives up on Lowell. The other fleet continue to look for him. And it's like as if... He has given up on humanity, but humanity has not actually given up on him. But I suppose for all the kind of like the moral posturings as to kind of is he right, is he wrong, I think there is an inescapable fact in that Silent Running is such an enjoyable film to watch. And by kind of renaming the ship shows Huey, Dewey and Louie, Lowell and his mute companions make quite a charming team. I was actually quite surprised to learn that the drones were in fact manned by humans and it's perhaps the human element to them that gives them such a endearing quality and it saddens me to report I won't ruin the uh, the plot entirely but not all of them make it through and by god the film's final scenes hit me pretty hard but oh I think it's Bruce Dern is the gel that keeps it all together his performance never gets into the kind of the schmaltzy or the cute. This is not Steven Spielberg. And although the soundtrack is a little on the nose, and I certainly, it really dates the film along with the haircuts, Dern's performance never feels like he is playing to the audience. 
if it, I, I suppose if you were to compare this with something like, I don't know, Tom Hanks in Castaway, the two roles are kind of quite similar in you have these two men kind of obviously stranded on their own. But I think Dern's is far more emotionally captivating than Hanks's, And it's kind of um, a little bit strange to me that he doesn't get um, more credit for this when you don't often see it uh, kind of on um, you know, all-time greatest performances. And I, I really did think for kind of, you know, for mainstream American film, I, I really did think that, um, you know, I wouldn't say, certainly say Oscar uh, material because obviously I, I don't really think the Oscars are, you can kind of judge them as being the benchmark of quality. But I certainly thought he kind of deserves a lot more recognition from this than he actually does get. I sort of also really found myself admiring Trumbull. Now, it was, you know, I hate having to kind of mention him on virtually every single episode, but George Lucas once said that of special effects, that they should be there to complement a story, not dominate it. And how true a statement that is. Yet, perhaps he actually needs some lessons from Trumbull um, on this issue, because you know, for all its kind of, um, I suppose, pretty incredible model work, the effects of the film don't kind of overwhelm it. They are there simply to complement it and build on the world in which you're watching. I was having a debate with someone the other day and they were talking about how like model work in um, films often uh, dates it dates the film quite badly and I actually kind of disagree on that point. I think that bad CGI and cheap looking CGI stands out a lot for, worse for me than model work and here you know you see these kind of um, the Valley Forge and it's you know it's clearly a model but it looks absolutely amazing and it has a kind of a physicality to it that poor CGI simply doesn't and I think you know for that debate I think what you need to do is kind of look at silent running as being a, just a lasting testament to practical effects simple model making and rear projections and you are transported into outer space but Trumbull, you know, it's a first-time director, and I think he kind of, you know, I suppose there might have been a temptation for him to do more special effects, but, but he just does what is necessary to tell the story. And you know, he says in the commentary that he was a first-time director and he didn't really kind of know what he was doing, but I think I really kind of have to salute his skills. It's a shame that he only made um, this and one other film, I think it's Brainstorm, I think the film's called, and I've actually ordered that from America because upon seeing Sight Running, I was really, really intrigued um, to, to watch it. And quite... Completely by coincidence, I was on Facebook yesterday and I noticed on the Hollywood Saloon Facebook page um, they were talking about it there and I can't wait to receive it because uh, judging from what I've seen in Silent Running, I think um, yeah, it might be quite an interesting little film to watch. And, you know, I also, you know, this is a really well-written film as well. You know, we kind of forget, you know, right, actually in the process of writing a film at the moment, how kind of, you know, we don't really need dialogue. You just need to kind of tell a story visually, which I think... You know, Trumbull does absolutely magnificently. It's also, I think, how kind of frightening, how visionary this film actually is. Lowell kind of rallies against the processed, horrible food his crewmates eat. And now you just look at the absolute crap that we pick off the shelves today in the supermarket. I was um, doing our, our weekly food trip the other day and the, kind of the, there was a couple in the, uh, just behind me actually, in their tray. And it was full of things like microwave burgers and microwave chips and microwave pizzas. And it just, you know, the, the E numbers alone just kind of baffled me. And you sort of think, you know, where's the kind of the nutrients and where's the kind of the goodness in that film? And uh, it, you know, it, it's just simply not there. And, you know, this was, I'm sure there was crap food in the 1970s. But, you know, we've, we've come, you know, so far for the worse in that respect. 
think about how many kind of millions of square miles of rainforest have gone and how many kind of animal species have gone extinct. I uh, donate to um, uh, the WWF uh, Foundation um, with, you know, uh, for snow leopard preservation and you kind of get these updates um, through occasionally and I think kind of the numbers for this specific breed that um, I donate towards, I think they're down to like something like 120. And you know, that's just shocking that an entire animal species could get down to 120. You know, it's absolutely frightening. And I think it's why Silent Running is one of those kind of truly great science fiction films. At its best, the genre doesn't have to be about wowing you with high concepts. You don't have to have effects-driven nonsense to enjoy the genre. All you need is a cleverly executed idea. And for me, this would have to join the likes of Contact, Primer, Gattaca and Blade Runner as a film about concepts and as one of those outstanding examples of its genre. I suppose kind of an ecologically themed science fiction film with cutesy robots may sound a little snore inducing but trust me it isn't and I think Blu-ray is the perfect way of discovering the film because Master Cinema as you know as as I've said before I've done an absolutely fantastic job with the film. Um, it sounds a little bit stupid of me to say but it actually looked as if a film was being projected onto my TV and obviously for a certain extent it is being projected on my TV but I think I'm, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is the image was absolutely perfectly clear but it had a proper texture to the image and there was none of this kind of you know no digital noise reduction just a fantastic transfer of what was there and also, you know, the sound effects, I suppose there could have been another kind of, um, I suppose, temptation to go back and kind of artificially get that surround sound mix in. But they've just gone for a 2.0 uh, DTS stereo soundtrack, which more than does the job. Um, it's not, I suppose, a sonically uh, deep film in that respect. And it, you know, again, it's just preserving what is actually there. There are some uh, features on the disc. Um, there is a contemporary 50 minute making of film, which is quite interesting. But the the, uh, the feature I actually really enjoyed the most was the commentary with um, Trumbull and Dern. And it was quite enlightening, really, because um, just kind of hearing about how some of the films made and the kind of the, you know, the kind of the thought process that went behind it. But one of the things that really kind of interested me, being a kind of a big fan of Stanley Kubrick, was some of the anecdotes Trumbull told me about. Um, so told me about some, some of the uh, anecdotes Trumbull actually says about him. And... Um, I, I, I kind of get the impression the, uh, the the two kind of had their kind of differences quite big time, actually. Uh, Trouble actually makes reference to the fact that um, he would often be misquoted in the press as saying it was him alone who did the effects for 2001. Apparently this used to annoy Stanley Kubrick quite a lot, who would ring him up and kind of set him straight. But he was also um, he's quite dismissive of the fact that um, Kubrick got a credit for doing those effects. And he sort of kind of... Uh, makes it quite clear that um, Stanley wasn't as involved as perhaps he would like to think he was. And obviously there's two sides to every story, but I um, I don't really kind of see the, the need for Trumbull to kind of lie about it. And it's also quite um, sad, really, because, uh, you know, this film wasn't a massive uh, box office success. It kind of, it, I think it kind of achieved cult status, really, but it was never really kind of given the uh, the credit it deserved. And his, he did struggle throughout his career to really kind of um, get other projects off the ground. He obviously only made the uh, the one other film after this. That's a shame because uh, you know the guy seems to make science fiction films which kind of really appeal to the likes of me and unfortunately you know um, what do we have in his stead? Well it's you know uh, 
our good old friend Roland Emmerich um, doing his type of uh, specific brand of science fiction. But overall, um, definitely well worth checking out on Blu-ray. It does come in a limited edition steel box. Again, um, there is no uh, extra DVD uh, dual format type thing going on here. It is just the Blu-ray. Fantastic little booklet as well. Um, I've noticed the, the steel... Uh, box edition is going up in price quite a lot on Amazon at the moment. Um, the normal edition I think is about twelve ninety nine. Uh, it is region B locked, so you would need a multi-region player to actually see it abroad. But overall, a fantastic film, a fantastic package, and a um, yeah, it's always good to discover films which you know you're going to come back to. And I certainly think this is one that I'll be revisiting again quite soon. I've got a story to tell you. It's all about spies. And if it's true, you boys are going to need a whole new organisation. We have a mole, Jim. London. Very near the top. An old fox, the most cunning of them all at the same time. Trust no one. No one. You work to me alone. I'm sorry, Jim, but I have to know what happened. The Russians moved in on the Friday. It was the day after when they got Jim. They were ready and waiting for him. Our control always preached that good intelligence work is gradual and rests on a kind of gentleness. As a good socialist, I'm going where the money is. As a good capitalist, I'm sticking with the revolution because if you can't beat it, spy on it. Okay, so next up then, um, for those of you who listened to my best of 2011, you would have heard that one of my favourite films of the year was Tuff Alfredson's brilliant adaption of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And it was a film which I wasn't really looking forward to uh, very much, and I think it was purely on the excellent reviews and word of mouth that I heard about it that I went to go and check it out myself, because... I kind of, I, I sat there and I thought to myself, well, how could they really improve on the miniseries? And of course they couldn't really. It was about working with the material that was there. And it was strange because when I walked out the cinema, kind of, with a kind of big grin on my face, having enjoyed it so much, I, the weird thing was that I went straight home and decided that I was going to watch the miniseries again. And it wasn't because I kind of wanted to um, compare, but it was because... I felt that Alfredson so got the world that John LeClaire tried to create that I wanted to kind of spend more time in it. And obviously the best way of that was going back and watching the six-hour version of the uh, adaption of the novel. And it, it, I, just, I kind of managed to kind of blaze through it in two days, and which I kind of think is the best way of watching um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy because... It is quite plot heavy, which I will get into in a minute, but before I kind of talk about the miniseries, I just want to kind of, I suppose, give a bit of an overview, really, of the kind of the current state of the BBC, because um, there is a kind of a, a point towards I'm working toward here. 
I don't really watch that much on the BBC. I know the kind of the stock um, series that everyone seems to watch is Doctor Who. I've never really been a fan of Doctor Who. Um, I guess I, I suppose I, I should go back and try and give it another go, but it's just, I, I don't know, like, it doesn't really appeal to me much. I, um, I've heard good things about the series Sherlock. I bought the first series the other day, it was quite cheap on Amazon, I haven't got around to watching it yet. I might even, um, if I enjoy it, I might even do a bit of a review of it, but really I find that the BBC, the wildlife documentaries are normally pretty superb, but other than that, I don't really watch it very much. I find their coverage to be quite annoying even of sporting events I, I, I don't really like it very much I, w I would easily I suppose were I to um, were it to become optional whether or not you kind of pay for the BBC I don't honestly know that I would because uh, I think um, it really is pretty piss poor most of it what seems to be on it I would I'd contest really that the kind of the glory years of the BBC seem to be firmly behind it and I suppose, especially in kind of terms of like the wildlife documentaries, I suppose they're kind of struggling to sort of um, kind of carry on being original. I mean, I really enjoyed Frozen Planet, but um, you know, was it really kind of much different from Life in the Freezing? It certainly was. I suppose visually, it was a, a pretty spectacular. But you know, whatever. I I think if you kind of look at the corporation's history of TV programs, there are many, many gems there. Which, when you hold them up to some of the stuff that comes out today, that there's simply no comparison. And I think that the original miniseries of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is one of the corporation's finest achievements. Now, let's make it quite clear, really. I suppose the BBC was not averse to cutting costs in its time, and even the staunchest of apologists can't deny that sometimes you can tell that the production crew is working on a fairly tight budget. I mean, we, I've all seen the footage of Doctor Who where the sets are actually shaking and they're kind of rather ridiculous aliens. I know that's kind of, for some, that's kind of part of the charm, but you know, it, it wasn't there for the kind of the kitsch value. It was there because they had absolutely no money. And one of the kind of the practices of the BBC was to shoot interiors on video and exterior scenes on 16mm. Now, this practice, which is brilliantly lampooned in an episode of Monty Python in which the uh, the team suddenly become afraid to leave a room because they have become surrounded by film. Um, I, I think you can see it on YouTube. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, a little bit kind of a, I suppose you have to be a bit of a, a bit of a geek to really kind of appreciate the humour. But it certainly I think draws attention to the fact that uh, I suppose that people at the time were very aware of the kind of the complete contrast when you would have a character walk in from outside to inside. So it kind of comes as quite a surprise really that. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy escaped the budget sheets and it appears that the BBC knew that in order to kind of do it right they had to kind of, um, I suppose, put a little bit more money than they normally would. And therefore what we get is like a televisual treat that oozes class from all of its pores. But no, make no mistake, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is far from a glossy all-action affair. In fact, it's possibly one of the most miserable, rough, bleakish dramas you'll ever see. And... It's hard to even say you will particularly like anyone in it. It is, though, utterly compelling. Unlike vast swathes of the world, author John LeClaire was not the biggest fan of James Bond. He felt the character was something of a joke, and quite simply, this wasn't really being a spy was really about. And how would he actually know that? Well, he was one, and for the past part of 50 years, he has been, in one way or the other, writing about it. It was the character of George Smiley that Leclerc wanted to be everything that James Bond wasn't. 
Although it was the Carla trilogy of which Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is the first, along with Smiley's People and The Honourable Schoolboy, and actually it, after Tinker Tailor Spy, it's The Honourable Schoolboy, and then um, Smiley's People is actually the conclusion, and I'll, I'll talk about those, those two in a little bit, but it was the character of George Smiley that Leclerc wanted to be everything that James Bond wasn't. And although it was the Carla trilogy of which Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy is the first that would make the character so popular, he appears in many of Leclerc's novels before. The world of Leclerc is full of its own vocabulary, and for many it's one of the barriers that stop people from really enjoying his work. And although some acclimatisation is required, on second viewings you quickly find yourself in a world that is far removed from your idea of what being a spy must actually be like. The series masterstroke was the casting of Alec Guinness in the lead role of Smiley. At the height of his Star Wars fame, it is hard really not to resist the rather ridiculous notion that Guinness was born to play Smiley. Smiley in Guinness's hands is a deeply complex character, yet Guinness achieves all of this through simple changes in the tone of his voice, the raise of an eyebrow or the cleaning of his glasses. Guinness was a notorious pain in the ass to work with and Guinness would watch the daily rushes complaining that he was not really getting the performance that he wanted. And the aforementioned glasses were even an issue for Guinness. In the novel, Smiley uses the fat end of his tie to clean them. In the series, Guinness opted for the handkerchief. Why? Well, because, of course, London would be too cold for someone not to leave their house wearing a three-piece suit. And Guinness felt it was more realistic that he would actually just use his handkerchief. Perhaps it was the perfection in, his, in him or just because he was being overly modest but it's hard to see how anyone let alone himself could find fault in his work. You may not love George Smiley but you were not meant to either because the world of Tinker Sailor Soldier Spy is one which moral and ideological ambiguity reigns supreme and precisely why George Smiley is the way he is is the world that he lives in has no clear-cut heroes only painfully ordinary men doing a job that for the most part they despise anyway. So what is Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy actually about? Well, MI6, or the circus as it is known by those who work in it, have a problem. Its head, known only as Control, suspect that there is a mole at the very top placed there by Russian spy master and nemesis of Smiley, Carla. Control dispatches agent Jim Perdue to Czechoslovakia to aid a defecting Russian general codenamed Operation Testify. The real aim is to find out who the mole is. Only Prodeo is ambushed, shot and tortured and in the ensuing scandal Control is fired along with Smiley with bitter rival Percy Alline along with his acolytes Bill Hayden, Roy Bland and Toby Esterhays taking over the circus. All of which along with Smiley were suspected by Control as being the mole and given the code names Tinker Taylor, Soldier, Poor Man, Beggar Man all derived from an English nursery rhyme, Tinker Taylor. Several months later, and Control has died with Smiley milling around London, dealing with the latest fallout from his cheating and beloved wife Anne, who has left him for a young upstart living in the country. Smiley is contacted by Oliver Lacon, the civil service officer in charge of the intelligence services, and driven to his country house along with Peter Gwillem, a still-serving and loyal to Smiley intelligence officer, when we meet Ricky Tarr, a rogue agent who has a story to tell. Tarr has uncovered something quite shocking, that there is a mole at the very top of the circus. 
either Aline, Hayden, Bland or Esther Hayes is giving top secret information to Kana and Moscow's centre. Only which one is it? And with the law of battling against Nemesis Carlo, as well as getting even with his former colleagues, who were only too happy to oust him from the circus, Smiley can hardly say no, and along with Gwillem, begins his mission to root the mole out. In the age of Bon, Born and 24, we expect our agents to smash their way through windows, batter confessions out of suspects, and blow stuff up, which is why perhaps for some, Tinker Taylor told your spy, it's perhaps a very definition of tedium. Certainly when I saw it in the cinema, there were people who were, I think, completely bored by it. And it was actually quite amusing, uh, the uh, the running commentaries that were going on from several people explaining the story to the person they were with. But I suppose the most accurate way of describing it is a group of chain-smoking, hard-drinking, upper-class bureaucrats talking. The stuff of high-octane entertainment this is not. Told mostly in flashback from different characters' perspective, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a labyrinth of plot twists and turns that demand your full attention at full, all times. It is virtually impossible, I would argue, to be able to take it all in with just one viewing, and even on repeat viewings you will find yourself far more in tune with the vocabulary of Lacar, as well as enjoying the sardonic wit of the characters. Set at the height of the Cold War, Britain is essentially presented as being no better, or indeed worse, than the East. Britain's role post-World War II had greatly diminished. We were no longer Britannia ruling the world. It was, for all intents and purposes, a spent international force eclipsed by America and the likes of France and Germany. The circus is staffed by relics of this time. A cup of tea is a ritualised affair. Just see the series opening with the four suspects entering a room. All you need to know about their personalities could be found here as they shuffle in. And after work, trips to dingy drinking dens are an essential part of climbing this circus chain of command. It's not hard to imagine how these people got their jobs. Perhaps it was either contact through mummy and daddy or indeed the virtually inheriting the job sometime in the 50s. The spy agency's favoured recruiting pools were the corridors of Oxford and Cambridge, the idea being that such important work could only be carried out by the finest of minds and of course the fattest of family wannets that could afford such an education. The British class obsessions with good stock and family name were embedded into the fabric of government and its various departments, with the end result being organisations like the circus, a place ruled by class regardless of actual ability. Smiley is both part of and somehow detached from this world. It is clear he has a certain degree of disdain for most of his colleagues, yet he has long resigned to the fact that the place where they work largely does meaningless work and it has really no greater significance. Any ideological further he once had has long since whittled away to nothing. Smiley, it seems, that ever revel in the good old days. He is more or less just another cogging machine that chugs along, never really doing much or little of anything. In my particular favourite scene of the series, we see in a flashback Smiley meeting Carla, played by Patrick Stewart in India. And as he attempts to get him to defect, Carla says nothing throughout as Smiley tries to convince him that there are great benefits to doing this. Only we know that Smiley doesn't really believe anything he's actually saying. He is merely doing a standard speech he has given many times before to people he's tried to make defect. Carla will more than likely simply be a notch for the circus to justify a small crease in budget next year. Visually, both East and West are indistinguishable from each other. This series as a whole has a muted appearance and we are spared the kind of picture postcard presentation of London with zero cutaways and establishing shots of famous landmarks to sell the series to foreign audiences. 
I particularly love the dense layer of smoke that permeates most bars, the characters going in needles. Every time someone's on screen, smile included, they're almost always drinking booze, even carrying around a handy bottle here and there. Two of the most pertinent characters in the series barely feature in it at all, other than what they have done and what they are doing unseen many thousands of miles away. Carla, as the nemesis, is an incredibly intriguing figure, because as I said, when we do meet him in the scene in India, he doesn't actually say a word, yet he's frequently referenced by everyone, and it's clear that he has a particular, I suppose, vendetta against Smiley, and it would, I, I would be ruining certain plot points if I was to go any deeper, but him and Smiley are playing this giant game of chess across the borders. He is the unseen foe who niggles Smiley, to the point where I suppose, although he kind of smiley would never admit it, he probably does keep him awake at night sometimes trying to think about how he can kind of get one over him. But essentially smiley and Carla are two sides of the same coin. Both have strength and weaknesses, as did the Eastern Bloc and Western Eyes. And it's not really until the third novel and the follow-up series, Smiley's People, that Smiley eventually wins this battle. However, in Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, it is Carla who is most certainly the winner. His personal assault on Smiley comes through Smiley's, I suppose, Achilles heel, which is his estranged wife, Anne. And she only really appears in the series' final few minutes, but she is important as a character as anyone else. At various times in the series, people ask how Anne is doing to Smiley. And the word is like a knife in the heart of him, often prompting Guinness to either dart his eyes or grimace a little, as the real subtext of the question is the person knowing full well what Anne is actually up to and what she's actually done. And they're doing it just to turn the screws on Smiley a little bit. And it's so they can go back to their little gossip circles and laugh at how he kind of winced when they mentioned his name. From a writing perspective, she is a perfect device, a kind of a femme fatale of sorts. She lures men in, yet is not immune from being part of this great chess game that is being played. For Smiley, a man so seemingly so immune from pain, and is reminded that he is human after all, and really quite a sad one at that. George goes home to an empty house where clearly he would like nothing more to return and find her waiting for him. Of course, though, it's not just Guinness, I think, that makes this such a fantastic ensemble piece. In particular, I have to kind of give credit to Ian Richardson as Bill Hayden. And I, I suppose um, it, it's a strange one, Ian Richardson, because he, he's a really creepy guy, I find. But he's also extremely likeable. And, and you know, Joel Bennett as uh, Ricky Tarr is a wheezy little bastard, and you could quite understandably see why everyone in the everyone in the series sorry absolutely hates Tar but Bennett sort of adds this little layer of smug aggression to him that I you know it, it seems so strange to go to such lengths to make someone unlikable but it's it certainly I, I think it's kind of perfectly in keeping with this series as well and Michael Jason as um Peter Gwillem is kind of like a um a posh thug really who you know you can imagine that he was kind of recruited because um you know, quite handy with his fists, probably from quite a good school, a little bit of a playboy perhaps, but, you know, he's absolutely universally hated at the circus by everyone bar Smiley. And for someone, I mean, I've worked in local authority and obviously it was like absolutely nothing like the circus, but I recognise the kind of the character types uh, 
in the series that you see in that world. These are people who are kind of like, they're almost cut off from what it's like to work in the real world. It's not about what you do, it's about what you seem to be doing. And I can kind of relate to it quite a lot actually because um, I, I, I've seen people who have virtually no ability whatsoever who just trample on other people and do it in the most despicable ways possible. Um, I can give a kind of one anecdotal story of someone who I was working with who um, actually stood up to a manager um, quite rightly and that manager then had them referred to the occupational health unit at the authority claiming they were suffering from um, mental problems which actually affected that person's career quite badly and it was little things like that which you know they're quite commonplace and it's the kind of the sheer career mindedness of the people in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy you know the kind of the Haydens and the, the Esterhazes they just want to climb the ladder because that's what you do not about you know kind of the results that you actually produce and you know if you do produce results where you kind of like you gloss them up and you hype them up as much as you can in this respect i think it's kind of like uh quite important that the director john irvine who he kind of he allows the material to speak for itself and he's Direction never gets in the way of just letting conversations flow and letting the story kind of piece itself together. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a story of words and Nakar himself was involved in the adaption process and I, I think that's a really good thing sometimes because you know certainly he was involved with the film as well which I, I yeah, again I come back to the idea it really did manage to kind of I think capture the essence of the series and the book so well and Irvine I think some might say, I, I guess, you know, in, in the age of kind of like 24, you might find his direction um, a little bit kind of stagnant, I suppose. But it doesn't need anything more. This is no kind of, you don't need the shaky cam. You just need to kind of let actors do their acting and let the script speak for itself. Overall, I think I can recommend um, if you were interested in getting hold of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, do not buy the American um, release of the series because it was actually cut from six episodes to five. I would recommend getting the um, the BBC series sent over. It's dead cheap actually over here at the moment, about five pounds. I think you can get it for off Amazon. So even with international shipping, it's only you know, it's going to come in less than a tenner. Because I think it is it's perfectly made for the DVD format. Like I said, I watched it in a couple of days, but I could easily um, kind of blaze through it an entire day. And I think that would be the best way of watching it because. You know, it, the stories are kind of, uh, it is quite hard to follow. And I remember at the time, um, well, so I don't remember at the time, but I remember I've re read that at the time, there was kind of a lot of kind of postulation going on in the kind of the media, you know, what was it actually all about? And I can kind of understand why, because if you, know, you were waiting a week, you would probably forget certain characters and things like that. But definitely get hold of it. It is, for me, one of the one of the best TV series um, out there. And I certainly think it is what a Sunday is made for. a groundbreaking ceremony for a new factory. Did you mention seeing anyone who was sick? Anyone on a plane at the airport? No. She said she was jet-lagged. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Beth. Go up to your room, honey. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. 
You had a seizure this morning, Beth. Is she the history of seizures? No, no, no. Allergies? As of last night, there were 32 cases. Unfortunately, she did die. Can I go talk to her? Mr. Amos, your wife is dead. What are you talking about? What happened to her? What happened to her? Is there any way someone could weaponize the bird flu? Is that what we're looking at? Someone doesn't have to weaponize the bird flu. The birds are doing that. Watch this. It's transmission. So we just need to know which direction. On day one, there were two people, and then four, and then 16. In three months, it's a billion. That's where we're headed. They're calling out the National Guard. They're moving the president underground. People will panic. Get away! It will tip over. The truth is being kept from the world. Cook your samples, destroy everything. Hello. I need you to get me the names of everyone who serviced this room. It's an emergency. You can't panic now. I know. I'm gonna get you home. I got people too, Dr. Cheever. We all do. Don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anyone. Stay away from other people. Get back in your car! We're not sick! It's figuring us out faster than we're figuring it out. It's mutating. Okay, so on to this week's reviews. And first up is Steven Sodenberg's film Contagion. Now, the disaster movie in the kind of eyes of Hollywood seems to be that everything has to be wrapped up to a factor of 10. And I kind of think in particular of the likes of Roland Emmerich in films like 2012 and The Day After. And these films kind of fall completely flat with me because they are just completely and utterly unbelievable. They're almost, I suppose, as fantasy as film can get. Now, these films normally kind of take part. We, we, we meet the heroes, the disaster happens, and five days later, everything is sorted out, albeit with a few million people less, and the whole thing is nicely wrapped up and uh, concluded in a kind of, I suppose the, the word I would use for it would be in a kind of in a safe way. Now... Following the end of World War One, the Spanish influenza virus killed approximately 1% of the world's population. Now, a single-digit casualty rate does not sound too terrifying. Indeed, it almost kind of sounds inconsequential, but were the kind of the same thing to happen today, the figures would certainly be not something to sniff at. You know, in Britain, which has a population of about 60 million, uh, were 1% of, of that amount to die we would lose around 600,000 people. And even if you keep the death toll in the single digits and move the move it up to the highest single digit, say nine, the death toll would be just short of 5.5 million people. Indeed, on a global scale, the numbers become quite immense. Just 1% would equate to around 60 million people. Now, since the 1920s, we have become a largely urban species, with most of the population packed into relatively small, confined spaces. A modern metropolis forces us to pack tightly into public transport and vast office blocks, where even 
in the most modern of offices, a unwashed spoon can rapidly become the latest bug going around. Contagion is a film in which a global pandemic takes hold. The human species as a whole is not threatened, but in this event a great many people will die. This is not the kind of disaster film you might be used to seeing or have probably seen before. I think it is something utterly more horrific. Now, Steven Sodenberg is one of those few directors working today who seems to be able to walk the line between artistic and commercial as well as being able to survive the odd box office failure here and there. And I kind of, I initially thought that um, Contagion was quite a low budget film. Um, it didn't have a particularly um, good run at the cinema here. It certainly wasn't on for very long. I didn't get to see it at the cinema. Um, I can't, I, for a film like this, I think it kind of... Um, I, I, I wasn't entirely sure that they kind of knew how to kind of market it really and it was kind of on at strange times and I, I unfortunately didn't get to go and see it but I like I said I, I almost thought this is one of these low budget affairs and I kind of like saw the cast and kind of like Jude Law, Kate Winslet, Marion Coulthard, Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow and then I kind of realised perhaps um, there was uh, perhaps a little bit more money behind it than I first thought but you know, around 60 million dollars um, it cost to make and that's still more than kind of Super 8 but if you kind of take the film on you know, just kind of face value, we have some of the world's most bankable stars and this kind of high concept disaster. Yet any kind of clue as to what you think is going to happen almost disappears quite quickly because certainly, well, certainly did in my case, because the first caption you read uh, is day two and you kind of ask yourself well, what on earth has happened to day one? And this choice isn't just kind of whimsy or Sonnenberg being clever or showy for the sake of it. Indeed, as I'll get to later, I think this is a masterstroke of narrative storytelling, thematic explanation and genre expectation being turned on its head. The film quickly finds its stride with Gwyneth Paltrow playing a businesswoman who exhibits signs of coughing when in Hong Kong. Quickly other people she's come into contact with show similar symptoms and more alarmingly is how the contamination spreads around the world. When a man in China dies in his film on television, conspiracy nut and internet blogger Alan Crumweedy, played by Jude Law, begins to suspect something bigger may be going on. Back home, Gwyneth Paltrow's symptoms grow even worse as husband Mitch, played by Matt Damon, tries to look after. When Gwyneth Paltrow collapses and is rushed to hospital, the unthinkable happens. She actually dies, swallowed quite swiftly by her son. At the Centre for Disease Control, Edis Cheever, played by Lawrence Fishburne, dispatches his best woman onto the case, Dr Erin Mears, played by Kate Winslet, to try and find out what is going on. Soon the world begins to realise a new pandemic has begun. How will it react and can the contagion be brought under control? Is the government hiding something and are there other cures potentially available to the world? Everything I'm saying may perhaps scream been there before, but indeed my eyes were rolling during that synopsis. But the fact remains, contagion works to some extent because what we think is going to happen is based on all the crap that has come before. I won't spoil the film, but don't for a minute think that everyone in this film will make it to the end. And don't expect tears of emotions either. This is as blunt, as harsh and as scary as the experience I've ever had. Facts are often far more scary than fiction in cases like these. Sodenberg knows that you don't have to artificially heighten the tension. Moreover, simply play on what is there. I'd actually say that this is one of my favourite Sodenberg films, especially in terms of how it is actually shot and edited. The camera work has a detached quality to it, rather than getting to know these characters in intimately. I can test we are to kind of judge them on their actions, and 
What you find is more often than not, you can perfectly understand why they do certain things. In short, I think they are being human and don't necessarily perform like heroes often do in films and how perhaps we often demand that they behave. I was in some ways reminded of Kubrick in certain scenes rather than sticking to a shot reverse structure. Soderbergh changes the angle slightly on the reverse, framing the character a little closer. Without reading too much into it, I personally found myself thinking about the dynamics between the characters a little differently with the dialogue masking their inner intentions and the camera work highlighting the huge differences between them. And Contagion is a very dialogue driven piece. Some may say that is too much exposition, however, I feel like this needs wordy exchanges between scientists. In a film like 2012, you don't need to know why an exploding volcano is dangerous, you can actually see it. In Contagion, you don't see a microscopic virus mutating, but you do need to know what type of complications this will cause and what and this can only really be done through the dialogue. What is the kind of the enemy in the film, so to speak, is bureaucracy. The powers that be cannot agree on a coherent approach, and indeed, despite being made with the cooperation of the Centre for Disease Control, the film does show its limitations. Governments tend to love having various departments to do one job. You know, think about something like Hurricane Katrina. I think there was, there was such confusion as to who was supposed to be doing what. You know, who was actually supposed to be in charge was not apparent during the early stages, and it led to kind of catastrophic delays in helping people. Britain is no better off than having personally seen how Manchester would prepare for a disaster. I would like to say anyone living in the area that just run in the complete opposite direction if anything does actually happen. And I kind of, I suppose, you know, another staple of the disaster film is public order breakdown. It always seems to happen quite quickly and in Contagion the power remains switched on and even the department store kind of stays open. Again, this doesn't sound too terrifying, but the fact that the remains that the more scarce basic provisions become, the more likely people are to kind of fight and break the law. And you know, we do see scenes of this in the film, but it's not this kind of, it doesn't completely dominate it. And I, mean, I, you know, and it, it, I guess a lot of the, these times you kind of see how quickly law and order breaks down in films. Everyone just seems to kind of like march in off the street and start looting. But the best example I can give is really in England a few years ago, there's some severe flooding. And what amazed me was how quickly people began to turn on each other. Now, I remember, I, I kind of got an inkling it was being, it was incredibly serious when the kind of the uh, BBC sent one of their correspondents along to it, and he was the guy who normally goes on and kind of reports on wars. And you know, quite clearly, you know, some of the, um, the the arguing that was going on was, was very much racially motivated, and I think it does kind of bring about huge divisions in societies quite quickly. And, you know, these types of events, I do think, bring about some of the most obvious statements. Life is a truly survival of the fittest and were such an occurrence likely to occur would if faced with perhaps starvation or perhaps something like a loved one needing medical supplies could you honestly say you would not go down the road to the elderly couple whom you might suspect of having supplies and try and rob them perhaps if they refuse to give you any how easily could you convince yourself that what you had done was right it may seem a little bit misanthropic in the extreme but speaking for myself I'm not ashamed to admit that I I think I might kind of crumble to temptation and I, I suppose the kind of the we were all meant to sort of sit there aren't we and um, put our place on these pedestals and say well you know it, it, the same thing to happen I'd you know I'd share my food out and things like that but I honestly don't think we are I I, I think we do kind of in these types of environments I do, I do think we kind of do resort to um, perhaps our kind of our animal side that being said you know I think for all the kind of the great stuff that is there in Contagion 
I do think there's a, a couple of plot story, a plot points really that kind of um, didn't quite kind of work for me. The Marion Coulthard subplot, I thought it was fairly obvious to me what was going to happen, and it did feel like it was a little bit kind of um, tacked on. That her her story actually takes place um, in Asia, and I, I kind of thought it was perhaps there to sort of show the kind of the global scale of it, but I, I didn't really like it. I'm not quite sure how I feel about Marion Coulthard as well. I, I'm, I, I think perhaps she might be better in you know, when she's just speaking French and not English. I don't know. Might, perhaps it might just be her delivery. But also with the Jude Lord character. Jude Lord's a strange one as well for me because I don't often like him in films. Um, but he kind of won me over in this. And he's a bit of a dick. But some of his dialogue were, was absolutely um, atrocious. I don't think it was his problem. I just think it was how it was written. And it was so on the nose that it was kind of a little bit kind of distracting. He was kind of talking... Um, you know, his prime kind of um, focus in life is about how many unique visitors he gets to his website and stuff like that. And, yeah, I don't know, it just seemed, um, for a film that seemed so realistic, I mean, obviously I'm kind of basing my uh, idea that it's realistic on absolutely nothing, but for a film that seemed so kind of committed to sort of uh, showing this event with a kind of degree of reality, his character just seemed a bit kind of, um, um, a, a bit much. Although he, the kind of the, the arc of that character is really good, and I think certainly the, the conspiracy side of thing, um, it kind of ends, I would... Uh, it, I don't think the ending was as clear-cut to his kind of story arc as perhaps um, you might like to think. But overall, I think Contagion is the kind of high-concept disaster film that if you kind of love intelligent cinema, it's the, it's the film that you would be crying out for, really. It's not loud, noisy and dumb. It doesn't get nicely wrapped up in seven days. And I think the, the, the time frame of the film is perhaps one of its most frightening aspects. Almost an entire year passes before the vaccinations begin. And there's no kind of like, we will prevail speech at the end. Um, it is shot and edited and directed to near perfection. I can't think of anything in recent memory that has really kind of scared me as much as this. But kind of just to kind of wrap up, I do want to talk a little bit about the film's ending. When the sequence began... I kind of rolled my eyes and I thought, oh, please don't kind of do this such an obvious bloody thing. However, it is absolutely kind of, um, I think, a brilliant way. One of the best endings I've seen in a film for a long time, because what it actually does is it makes it kind of reminds you of one, how kind of tangible our kind of um, life on Earth here actually is. To, to kind of give it, a, a, one of the reasons, I mean, I don't know, kind of, um, this may seem a little bit kind of out there, but there, there was, I don't know if it's even going on, I might need to check it up, but for some reason, um, all the world's amphibians um, have been kind of decimated, really, by a, um, a a plague of sorts, this virus that's gone around, it's spread all over the world, and, you know, I remember seeing a BBC programme, they were actually having to move certain species out of areas of forest because the disease was getting closer, and, you know, we think, oh, it's only kind of like frogs and things like that, but, you know, could could the same thing happen? And you, you sort of, what the ending of this film does is kind of, it just reiterates that, you know, for all the um, kind of, you know, technological advancements we've made, we are still kind of um, at the mercy, really, of nature. You know, it's certainly something, you know, um, H.G. Wells explored in War of the Worlds. You know, it wasn't our kind of machines that could defeat the Martians. It was our kind of microbes that won them in the end. And I think... Uh, the film's ending will kind of it, it might not it might not hit you straight away, but certainly I mean I felt I found myself a couple of days being really really haunted by it, and uh, like I said I, it was it was just 
I think the perfect way to kind of wrap up what I'm not, I'm not gonna say it's a perfect film, but certainly the I guess that kind of intelligent piece of cinema that um, last year seemed to lack, and I'm really annoyed with myself that I didn't go and watch it at the cinema, but um, definitely check it out. I believe it's already out in America on Blu-ray. The Blu-ray here is out in March, as I understand, and definitely worth checking out because if you, even if you kind of, um, if you kind of like think of Steven Sonberg and you kind of think this perhaps might be one of his more mainstream efforts. I think as a fan of his work, you will you will love it because uh, certainly the direction like alone, like I said, is um, pretty special. And I, I certainly think um, it'll be a film that I'll be going back to quite a lot. And uh, to actually be able to say that is uh, something of a, I don't know, something of an achievement really with um, a lot of films that, that seem so disposable. Short of a six pack. Lights are on, but no one's on. I can imagine from the outside looking at it, anyone that's racing the TT looks like the lights are on, but no one's on. Guy Mock, where do you start? Guy's colourful character, he loves a bit of attention. We are one minute away from the start of racing. You don't know where he is, as usual. He'll be here in a bit. He's fit, he's young, fast, real fast. He's always been a threat. Every man and his dog in the world wants Guy Mine to win. I'll try it. I don't give it. It's not about beating the next guy. It's about who beats the track. It's when he went. I really believe it. That's Guy Martin's fastest lap ever around the door. This TT is the most powerful race you'll ever do in your life. If you make a mistake, it's going to be serious injury or worse. You can't love the death, you can't love the loss, but you can't love the, the excitement and the thrill without knowing that that's part of it. Some lads love going to the pub. Some lads love shagging. I don't mind it, I'm not into it. Different things make different people happy, don't they? Guy Martin is having the love of his life, but is it going to be enough to give him his first victory here at the TT? Okay, so next up is the documentary TT Closer to the Edge. Now, last year, um, I kind of surprised myself really by liking the film Senna so much, and it was actually in my top ten of uh, of that year. And I, I, as I kind of said in that kind of top in that uh, review show, um, I'm not a huge fan of motor racing, but um, you don't really need to be a fan either way to enjoy Senna, I don't think. And it quite quickly after seeing that um, Richard D. R. Gross's film TT uh, Close to the Edge came out and it's actually about the Isle of Man TT motor race which if you don't know I um, will give you a little bit of background basically it takes place on the Isle of Man which is between England and Ireland in the Irish Sea and it is essentially a series of motorbike races in which the competitor in which the uh, competitors have to take place in time trials around the island. There isn't a track, so to speak, on the Isle of Man. The actual island becomes the track. And this might kind of sound, you know, um, 
all good fun rather, but the simple fact of the matter is that the Isle of Man TT is the most mental motor race in the entire world and most of the top motor racing teams will not take part in it because since it's been going, which is about kind of, uh, I think about 80 years, there have been over 200 deaths on the roads. And the only thing I can create to is British roads are um, ancient, basically, in many respects, just to kind of give you some kind of context. And most of them are actually known as pig trails because they were actually the kind of um, trails in the forest that pigs uh, used to kind of walk through and over the years these were basically turned into roads so they're quite windy and the Isle of Man especially although it's not as kind of um, zigzaggy as you might think it's still a fairly uh, intensive uh, track to race around and quite frankly if you come off there aren't any kind of safety barriers so to speak you will more than likely smash into a brick wall or someone's house or go off the side of a cliff so your chances of survival are quite slim now, TT Close to the Edge follows the riders in one year, and it was shot on 3D on the red cam. I've only seen the 2D version of it, but the kind of um, the main subject um, of the film is a guy called Guy Martin, and he's hasn't actually won the TT yet, but he is a very funny, likable guy. He always has some kind of daft comments to make. Um, he's he's discussions on wanking are absolutely hilarious it seems he uh, never goes out on the track without having one but kind of what unites all the riders is the fact that they have a simple urge to go and do it it's something you have to be a certain type to do these and they're not idiots either and no like, like a lot of them say no one is forcing them to go and do this but it is almost as if the race and the event is what actually defines them and the kind of the, the participants do wrestle with the morality of it. One of the guys who builds the engines for them actually sort of says he feels like a drug dealer in many respects. But what kind of comes across is how these races, they're not kind of mega paid. They're not kind of superstars. They are kind of famous within the context of the race. You know, they do kind of have people going after them, asking for autographs and stuff like that. But they don't have kind of any of the ego that, um, you know, the kind of top racers seem to have, especially in kind of like Formula One. And you know, the prize money isn't particularly great either. But you know, these people literally kind of live on the streets that you live in. There's no they don't live in vast mansions or anything like that. And you know, what kind of comes across really is that it's just kind of I suppose of ordinary people doing something which to the outsider might seem extraordinary and perhaps even slightly stupid. But the rate the fans as well have this kind of fanaticism about it and it kind of inspires a kind of loyalty to it that I've kind of never really seen before. Perhaps it has something to do with the danger, perhaps there's that kind of um, voyeuristic nature of it, or perhaps it's the fact that the riders are just so completely down to earth. But I suppose there's this kind of surrealness to the race, which the film highlights. There's a brilliant scene where we just see kind of um, a, a shot of a church and the congregation singing hymns, and the next thing, um, we have like motorbikes racing by at 200 miles an hour. And, you know, the fact that it is just being, uh, the race is just on normal roads makes it all the more scary. Because you know, my family are um, originally uh, down in Kent and um, Kent, if you don't know, is in Southern England. And when I go down there, my girlfriend, who's lived all her life in Northern England in Manchester, she, 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 she can't believe how kind of windy the roads are. And I don't even think they're that bad, but the kind of the Isle of Man, it, it does look very similar. And, as it kind of as the races begin, you kind of get this kind of the sheer brutality of it all comes into play. 
these are long time trial based races in which the riders are kind of set off at staggered intervals and you know sometimes they do actually manage to catch each other up but for the most part they're just simply trying to go as fast as possible and yeah, of course Martin is the kind of rogue and gets fined for speeding in the pit lane which in turn kind of caused him to lose a race but like kind of all good mavericks he seems to kind of fight the powers that be in sort of be the uh, the people's champion but Regardless of how you even kind of feel about motorsport, you cannot help but be moved by the races and the sheer craziness of it. It's all about the kind of the finer points of engines, and it isn't kind of like, you know, this top gear wank fest. It is, I think, very accessible to anyone, you know, who has just an interest in decent filmmaking. I think as well, yeah, the, the camera work is absolutely brilliant. Like I said, I haven't seen it in 3D. I, it was shot in 3D, so this isn't some kind of upconverted piece of shit, but it kind of has elements of it which I suppose are kind of really kind of clearly thought out and you know like the camera kind of gliding through houses and whatnot and even kind of Martin breaks the fourth wall as it were by kind of talking about the uh, the steady cam that you're using but far from kind of contrived and jarring is, is sometimes the case when we have kind of like artificially set up shots in um in documentaries this feels like it's actually building part of the world and it kind of kind of goes to great lengths to show kind of the um the ordinariness of the participants. The aerial footage as well is at times it, it'll put your heart in your mouth and when some of the crashes happen, you know, and you actually learn that um, some of the, you know, the riders actually made it through, uh, you, you kind of, you go back and watch them in slow motion and you're thinking, God almighty, you know, just to see what their bodies are actually put through. A quick warning note, the film does have tragedy to it and not all the races that you meet will make it through to the end. But what I think really kind of um, got me was the interviews with the families of the guys that have actually died and kind of how accepting they are of the loss. Um, it's the fact that they've actually gone there of their own free will. There is no blaming the powers that be. They don't kind of, they don't, they're not angry with um, the people that organised the race. They're not angry um, that on the corner that they died, there wasn't more barriers put out. I think they're just, pe the, the wives especially, they just accept that that is what their husbands or boyfriends do or whatever. And they just kind of accept the fact that it's happened. And, you know, it, it's sad as well because you see the riders, um, how they're reacting. You know, the, the, their rivals are also friends as well. And there's no sort of, there's no qualms about going out the next day. Everyone just gets a move on. Perhaps one of the only downsides of it, I wasn't too keen on the narration by Jared Lee. So it does seem a little bit out of place. And I don't know whether it was, the narration is just slightly badly written or it was just his delivery was a little bit off. But at times, it, it, I don't know, it, it sort of, I thought, was a little bit jarring. However, overall, TT Close to Edge is a surprising film that kind of follows, I guess it kind of lives up to this image of Britain having a certain kind of quirkiness to it. And um, I like it because it doesn't moralise this race. You know, um, there are every time, every year the TT happens, there will be... A news report of someone being killed and then there'll be a load of people on it after saying it needs to be banned and um that it's this kind of new you know, awful thing i don't think it should be it's like boxing you know if people want to get in the ring and do it let them do it i think and kind of like you know being this kind of investigation and hearing these two kind of um arguments you know, should they let it happen should they not let it happen i think what this actually does is it gives you an insight into the fact why people want to do it and I, I, for one, I mean, I've never, I, 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 every, every year the TT's on, I don't really kind of pay much attention to it. And this year I'm definitely going to check it out and uh, hope that uh, Guy Martin manages to find success because, as I said before, he is 
Um, he's. I, I, I've heard a few people call him an idiot and stuff like that. I, I, I don't think that. I just think he's an extremely funny chap. So do check it out. And if you do see it on 3D, let me know what you thought of it because um, there's no reviews of it up at the moment. Um, I normally go to Blu-ray.com um, to check out... Uh, what their thoughts on I don't think they've actually reviewed it yet. So if you do see it uh, on 3D, please let me know. In fact, if you saw it at the cinema on 3D as well, let me know how it looks because I'd be uh, quite interested. I haven't made the upgrade yet to the 3D television. Um, my TV in the living room um, is looking a bit old at the moment, so um, perhaps in the uh, next coming weeks I, I might be purchasing one. But Okay, that's going to be it for the episode of the 24 Frames cast. Um, if you want more from the show, you can find episodes on the exclusive page www.24framescast.blogspot.com There's currently a Bond retrospective going on there. There will be uh, a review of Diamonds Are Forever going up there quite soon. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast or you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com I'll be in contact soon. Many thanks for listening. Bye.